We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9 today. Uh, but I want to uh, remind you of what we talked about last week, because this week is actually part two of a series that we started last week, uh, simply called The Blood of Jesus. So we sang the great classic hymn, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. And last week we really focused on the of Jesus part of uh, the blood of Jesus. This week, lucky for you, I'm wearing red. Guess what we're focusing on? The blood. So it's been like a question that I've always had, like, well, what's so significant about blood? Why all this talk about blood? So we're going to look at that. Twelve times in chapters 9 and 10, the author of Hebrews uses the word blood. Now the question is, is there some magical power in the hemoglobin? Just, just a sec. I got, I got to pull out my, uh, I got to pull out my uh, <laughs> bucket list here. Let's check that off. Use hemoglobin in a sermon. Done. Yeah, I know you wanted to use that, Isaac. I see you. It's not the hemoglobin. Am I saying that right? All you medical professionals. No, there's something else about the blood, because what is blood? Blood is the representation of something much more. It's a representation of life itself. So the idea of the blood, the blood was the life source of the human being. And so we'll take a closer look at at why blood is so important to the understanding of the Christian gospel, the understanding of what Jesus has done for us. Uh, But I want to set the stage We're in this sort of repetitive mode in chapters 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10 of Hebrews. And the same theme keeps coming up again and again. And the theme is this idea of the shadow versus the real. So there's a shadow of a thing or a copy of the thing, and then there's the real thing in itself. And so we talked about the tent or the tabernacle that's on the earth. That's not the real. What's real is the heavenly sanctuary. Okay? And the tent is just a representation or copy of the real. And so last week we looked at the sacrifices. So in this tent or tabernacle, uh, the Hebrew people, the Israelites, were asked by God to go and make sacrifices for their sin. Anytime they fell short of the commands of God. Go to the temple, offer your bull or your goat, or if you didn't have enough money, bring your finest grain. Sacrifice it on the altar to God as a way to receive cleansing for sin. But here was the problem. We're dealing with the shadow and not the real. And so actually this sacrificial system and the tent, the earthly tent, was never meant to bring true, full forgiveness and cleansing of sin. What it would do is it would cleanse the outer man, but the inner man would remain at odds with God. And so why would God ask this? Well, he asked this because it's just a picture of something that was coming that was far greater that would actually do what needed to be done. And so we've seen that theme, and he cycled through all of these things that were shadows, and Jesus represents the real. And so this week, as I was thinking a lot about blood, and why blood, and and what is the picture of blood, and, and why do we have blood everywhere in the Old Testament, in the law, and why did we talk and sing about the blood of Jesus? I want to just kind of invite you into my thoughts over the week. I mean, one of the big things that we're about here at Sedaris is considering together. So we we say all the time, this is community 
for considering because sitting by yourself in a room endlessly isn't as fruitful as getting and talking about it with others. Now, there's a time and a place for being alone with your own thoughts, being alone with the Lord, but always bringing that then to the community and talking. So I just want to invite you into my consideration process this week. Hopefully it's helpful to kind of think about and ask questions about this. And then we'll get into our text. But here's what I was thinking about. What's so special about blood? What's so important about blood? Well, then I started to think about the color red. And I started to think, well, red is kind of a unique color, right? Well, what color is blood? Now, the interesting thing, of course, it's not the same color inside the body as it is outside the body, right? But when blood is exposed to oxygen, it turns red. What's interesting about that? Only shed blood is red. So I was thinking more, you know, well, what's the deal with red? It seems like a unique color to me. It seems like we use it in unique ways. I mean, red, red cars tend to get pulled over by the cops more than non-red cars. You know, you hear that. The red rose, just, you know, despite the Hunger Games, the red rose is really the rose that we all love, right? That's the one Phil's Valentine's Day. You know, red is a special symbol. You know, you got Rudolph. I mean, what color is his nose? It's not green. It's red. You got stop signs are red. Stop signals, the really important part of don't go, that's red. Sale signs are always red. Why is that? You know, 77% of the world's flags have red in them. Seems like a lot to me. A study of languages reveals that red, in pretty much every uh, historical language, red is the first color that's given a name other than black and white. It's red. There's something special about the color red. And of course, this is the color of shed blood. So what's going on? So then I started to think about red. So uh, what is it about red? So I was doing some Googling and studying, and I, and I found out you know, the reason why red is used in all these ways, the signs, the sails, the roses, the reason why red is so special to us is because of our eye. Actually, what happens is our eye captures red in a unique way. It's the second most visible color, only behind yellow, but nobody likes yellow. And, and the thing is, um, the reason for this, you know, it's the reason why fire trucks are red and all this stuff, is because it triggers in us alertness. Because the retina of the eye actually forces the lens to grow more convex and it pulls forward the red. This is actually what happens with the eye. So you have this unique design in the eye where red just does something when you see it. It just draws you to attention. You perceive red things as moving forward. They're moving towards you. So this explains why red gets us, why red begs for our attention. So I was thinking about red. Then I was thinking about blood. I was thinking, well, what is it about the sight of blood? Sorry, if you struggle with the sight of blood, don't faint on me here because the, the deal is I actually get quite woozy at the sight of blood. I get the heebie-jeebies. I got it right here in my notes. The heebie-jeebies. And I'm very proud of myself because uh, when my son Grayson was born, right, Allie? You thought, 
for sure I was going to pass out in the delivery room. And so you're like, well, maybe we should invite one of my nursing friends to come along so that when you pass out, I'm not all alone, right? Well, I was trying so hard, and I am proud to say I did not pass out. Yeah, you can, you can applause for that if you'd like. Yeah. <laughs> Made it through the whole thing. Now, I was very strategic at how much blood I would look at for how long. I mean, there was a lot of eye contact between me and Allie. It was not like, I, I'm not one of those guys, I'm not looking around, just like, you know, needing to learn how everything works. I just focus on the eyes. But I didn't pass out. Made it through. Very proud of myself. But like, what, what is this deal with blood? Why does it make me feel this way? Why do I begin to gyrate? And why do I start giggling? And why do I get lightheaded? Why do I lose sensation in my fingers and my toes? Why do I start making all these weird noises? <laughs> like, I make weird noises when I see blood. Like, have you ever had this experience where you get injured? Like, maybe you just get a, a, like a cut, and the cut is bleeding, but you don't actually see it because it's on a part of your body you can't see without a mirror. And like, you're not worried about it at all. You're not even in that much pain. But then you're like, maybe I should just go check this out. And you go, and you like look at it in the mirror, and then you see that it's bleeding, and you just lose it. I mean, you just start screaming. At, you're like, ah! Save me, Jesus! <laughs> Somebody call 911. You call 911. What's your emergency? I'm dying. What's happened? I got a paper cut. This is how I deal with it. Now, scientists actually have labeled uh, this reaction, uh, and it's, it's known as the vasovagal. Somebody say it for me. Syncope. Somebody, somebody say it for me. Vasovagal syncope. Okay, got it right here. I practiced this all week. I'm not a medical professional. So the VS uh, goes something like this. You see blood. Your heart rate slows down. And sometimes you faint. Now, Demi, I think you have some experience with this, right? That's why you know it so well. Yeah. So you faint at the sight of blood. Now here's the interesting thing. A scientist will admit, I read some articles on this, that fainting at the sight of blood may actually be, this is what they say, this is a quote, fainting at the sight of blood may be a primitive reflex buried deep in our brain. So I'm thinking about this, okay. Primitive reflex buried deep in our brain. And then they say this, quote, it is a reflex that's built into every person on this planet. So even if you're not somebody that actually faints or has these sort of severe symptoms of VS, you actually have the same phenomenon happening to you when you see blood. Even if it doesn't end up with you on the floor screaming, DJ! That's Demi's husband. Okay. So what's going on here? What's going on here? Why do we have this reflux? So I'm thinking about it, I'm considering it, and I'm thinking about, well, blood has this effect on us. Every human being, not just some of us, every human being has this, some more severe than others, but why, why is that? What's going on? And I was thinking, well, this must be the reason why every film and every TV show has just been getting more and more and more gruesome and vivid and dramatic 
as time goes on. You've been experiencing this? It's like every show, it's no longer like, ha, sticky with a sword and you just know what that means. It's like we've got to let, shoot the blood at the camera. I mean, it's squirting everywhere. You're like, man, there's like people making millions of dollars on just, you know, blood squirting. It's good business. It's like, why is this? Why are all these TV shows going this way? Why are all these movies going, becoming more and more vivid with how they, uh, uh, how they show blood? I think the reason is because like sex, I think blood sells. Why does blood sell? Well, blood sells because it invokes something in us, right? And that's why we go, uh, that's what we want from our entertainment. We want to invoke some feeling in us. We want to feel alive. We want to feel a part of it. And so, if I can use more blood, I can invoke more meaning because of this thing that every human has, vasovagal, syncope, vs. Because it's a reflex that's built into every person on this planet, end quote. Now here's where it gets really fun. I'm reading these articles and I'm thinking, there must be some great scientific explanation for why every human being has this reaction, this invoking of meaning when they see blood, right? Thinking about it. Fred Jagger is his name. 26 years he's studied this phenomenon. And here's, I'm going to just read you the quote. Here's how he, his best explanation for why this happens. For example, he's trying to explain through the evolutionary process why this happens. For example, if you're a caveman and another caveman came, uh, came, came over to you and he cuts off your arm, the sight of the blood or the injury may cause you to faint, Jagger says. So when you're laying there on the ground, you'll look like you're dead to the other caveman, and he won't cut off your head. I'm not, this is 26 years of study. (laughs) This goes back to the time when we were hunters and gatherers, warriors, uh, Cro-Magnon people, he adds. Uh, Vasovagal syncope probably had some benefits. If you were injured and you lived to fight another another day, then the gene would be carried on just like the survival of the fittest. This is the best explanation. Let me say it again. This is science's best explanation for why we have such a strong reaction to blood. Now, I'm no expert in the subject. I may be wrong. But when I think of that, like, it seems to me that the guy who would survive longer or whose genes would sort of uh, make it through the process, he'd be the guy who's chopping off the arm and chopping off the head and doesn't have as big of a problem with the blood. Not the guy who loses his arm. He keeps his head, but he just has one arm, and he has to go hunt and gather with one arm. I don't understand how this is the best explanation. I'm going with the guy who's got no problem with the blood, and he's chopping people's heads off. So I was thinking to myself, I'm considering, maybe there's another explanation for why... Uh, We have this primitive reflux buried deep in our brain. Maybe there's a unique, there's a reason for the uniqueness of red and the uniqueness of our reaction to blood. Now, this is me considering, okay? So I'm asking myself these questions. What if, like, what if there's like a God who's designed everything, uh, and in fact, he's designed everything in the world and everything that we, every way that we see things in the world, okay? Now, what if that God 
he's actually designed the color of blood that when it's shed, when it's exposed to oxygen, it turns red, okay? And what if this God designed the eye in such a way that when it sees the color red, it looks like it's moving forward, it draws your attention as it hits the retina and it captures your eye. Now what if this primitive reflex that all human beings share in common didn't arise out of some evolutionary process in which the guy who gets his arm cut off survives more than the guy who's cutting the arm off. But what if it's actually implanted? What if it's coded? What if it's wired into every human being the way that they see the world? And what if that coding says when you see blood, pay particular attention to it? Especially when you see shed blood. Okay? That's what I'm thinking. That I'm thinking to myself, what if the reason that all ancient cultures, all ancient religions have some form of blood sacrifice, including the people of Yahweh, the Israelites, they all have this idea of blood sacrifice in their traditions, in their customs, in their religious ritual. Uh, what, if, what if that's not an accident? What if that's a shared consciousness? That we just somewhere deep down inside of us realize that blood needs to be shed to appease the divine power, even if we don't have the same name for it. What if? What if God's intentionally designed us on purpose, all of us, before the foundation of the world because He knew in His, in his timeless wisdom In His infinite wisdom, He knew that humanity would fall short of His holy standard, of His glory, and that we would need to be rescued, and we need to be redeemed. And the only way that that could happen was by the sending of Himself into the world and the shedding of the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. What if He knew that before it all happened? And so when He designed us in our eyes and the color red and the shedding of blood, He designed it knowing that one day this would come, so that we would look at the cross of Calvary and we'd say, there's something going on there. What if it's true that God in His mercy, His loving kindness, put this in every human being? In every culture, it's there. It's still a veiled picture, but the powerful quality and the special need for the shedding of blood, it's there. It's deep down inside of us. It's a primitive reflex. So that, so that, when we hear the story of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, of the shedding of blood on Calvary's cross, even if we fight it and its implications in our lives, that deep down, somewhere deep in our heart, we can't deny this. That at some level, we say to ourselves, you know what? This is really weird. This is really mysterious. But I kind of think that might be true. There's something that makes sense about that to me. And I couldn't tell you why. This is what I've been considering all week. Now, hear me. I'm not claiming that the Bible speaks of VS syndrome. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that maybe we've been looking at the problem all wrong. Because I think sometimes what we think of is God had to come in and intervene in our story and use a human 
ritual of sacrifice in order to bring us back. But what if God's not using a human thing, which is sacrifice? What if God Himself is the great sacrificer? What if He's always been a God of sacrifice? What if He's always been planning this from the beginning? What if sacrifice is a God thing and not a human thing? What if sacrifice comes from the author of sacrifice, God Himself? Now luckily, we don't have to just stay kind of admittedly in this very abstracted level of consideration, but we've got help. God's given us further explanation of how He's wired the world, how He's wired the universe, and we've got some answers to these questions about why sacrifice seems so ingrained in what it means to be a human. So, let's turn now to Hebrews chapter 9 and take a look at God's explanation for the necessity of blood in the world that He's designed and actualized. That's what we're going to look at today. So chapter 9 of Hebrews. And let me just read it here. We're starting in verse 15. Now you can go back in your own time uh, and read chapters 8 and 9 and and on to chapter 10, but we're going to be focusing right here on the second half of chapter 9. Verse 15 says this, Therefore He, that is Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. The promised eternal inheritance. Let me stop right there. It's so important when we think about the sacrifice of Jesus and what Jesus has done that we don't miss the point, right? Because I think sometimes we say, well, why did he have to shed his blood? It wasn't for some sort of temporal good or blessing. This is an eternal inheritance that Jesus, through the shedding of his blood, has secured for all those that trust in him, okay? This is so important, eternal inheritance. And uh, the reason why I just wanted to stop here and just focus in on this is because I feel like we've stopped talking about this. I feel like particularly in our generation that most of us uh, are in, we've kind of shied away from talking about the eternal inheritance and we focus more on the temporal blessings of knowing God. Now there are real blessings right now, here and now, of knowing God and we could list them off. But the real joy of the good news is the eternal inheritance that we receive. And I fear that the reason we don't talk about that is because we want to seem relevant, we don't want to seem crazy, talking about this eternal life with God in heaven, so we stop talking about it. But Jesus talked about it over and over and over again. And so we miss out on the whole point of why he's died if we don't see eternal inheritance. And in the previous few verses, you'll see eternal redemption. Okay. Now, let me give you an example here. Now, I get in trouble with Allie a lot because I love surprises and she doesn't. And so you know what I do? Say her birthday's coming up and I plan this very exciting... I don't always do this, so don't go, what did he do this last year? I don't know what I did, but there has been a time where I've done this, and I plan something great or I get her a great gift, and so, but I don't want to tell her because I love the surprise. And so she says, well, what are we doing for my birthday? She doesn't talk like that. I shouldn't say that. What are we doing for my birthday? No, that's not it. (laughs) 
I said, well, you know, I just figured, you know, it's been a long week, you know, let's run down to the KFC, we'll get a bucket of chicken, you know, you can get a milkshake because it's your birthday. I don't know if they do milkshakes at KFC, but you could get that if, if it's there because it's your birthday. But that's really all I've got planned. And then what happens is the week goes on, and, and I'm like, okay, you ready to do the KFC? And I've got this whole thing planned, and she's like, oh, actually, I've decided to go out with my sisters for my birthday because, you know, it's my birthday. It's kind of a big deal. That's not how she talks either. It's my birthday. It's kind of a big deal. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, because I had this whole thing planned for you. It was going to be amazing. And she's like, well, you never told me. I feel like we do that with the eternal inheritance. We have this heavenly homeland, but we don't want to talk about it because we don't, you know, like, let's focus on the now and here and the bucket of chicken that we get every time we come to church, you know. But it's like, no, the reason we do this, the reason we tell people about this, there's an eternal inheritance, there's a heavenly country, and Jesus has bought it with his blood. You can't miss out on that. He's bought it with his blood. We need to start talking about the eternal inheritance. That's why he died. That's why he shed. Not just for some small, little change that might happen if you participate with God and his church. This is a huge deal. It's a huge deal. Okay, let's keep reading. says this, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, for where there is a will involved, and the word will there could also be translated covenant, and, and many scholars would translate covenant, so covenant's the same throughout. So, for where a covenant is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will or a covenant takes effect only at, the de- at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who has made it is alive. Therefore, even the first covenant was inaugurated without, or was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Now here's, here's the kicker. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Okay, what in the world is he trying to say here? A death has occurred, verse 15. A death has occurred, verse 17. A will or a covenant takes effect only at death. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. I'm going to try to unpack this for you. Stick with me, because at the end of this little theological Uh, explanation is some powerful truth. Because the whole point of this little mini two-part 
the blood of Jesus is that we are trying to figure out how in myself do I cultivate a heart of a sacrificer, which is the same thing of saying, how do I get the heart of worship? Because to worship is, in essence, to sacrifice, and we'll see that. So that's where we're going, but we have to understand why a death is necessary, why the shedding of blood is necessary in God's e- cosmic economy, okay? So, we've got this verse in Hebrews 9. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. You might remember other uh, important passages. In Romans, it says, for the wages of sin is what? Death. Where is this idea that death has to come for sin to be forgiven. Well, if you were to turn back, I won't make you do it now for the sake of time, but in Genesis chapter 2, the second chapter of the Bible, God has created all things, and he said it's good. He's created man, and he's created woman. He said it's very good. And then what happens is he puts the man, um, he puts the man in the garden, and he says, listen, I want you to work with me in covenant to manage everything that I've created. I want you to be my representative, okay? And so, Uh, The man says, okay, and he covenants with God, and part of the covenant is you do things my way, God says. You come to me for direction on which way I'm to go, okay? And he says, if you break this covenant and you decide to do things your own way and not consult me, the penalty is death. So let 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 me read it for you. This is Genesis 2, 15. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree that's in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of that particular tree, you shall surely die. So this is the first time we see this principle right here at the beginning. If you know how the story goes, I mean, it's very clear commands, you know, you can have any tree, just trust me, trust my design, trust my wisdom, and just don't do that. But man says, well, you know, and you know, he's helped out here by some other dudes, and, 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 and he says, you know what, I don't know if I like that. And so he decides to break the covenant with God, and he decides to eat of that tree, and so he knows the equation. What's supposed to come? Death. Death is supposed to come. So this is kind of the basis for this. So where there is sin, death will follow. God's told us that's the way it works in the world he's actualized, and so that's just the way it is. And so what we see again and again, and death comes, and we'll come back to this, and we'll see what kind of death it actually was, but death does come. But we see this again and again and again. What happens is anytime a covenant is either released or a covenant is inaugurated, death is always associated with it. And that's what the author is saying. Anytime there is a, a new covenant established or broken or acted upon, a death is involved. This is how covenants work. Okay, you say, oh, that is very sort of old school, ancient, that's not the way things work now. Have you ever been a kid and you say, let me prick my finger, and you prick your finger, and we'll put it together, and we'll become bu- blood brothers. We should do this later, Chris. Blood brothers. <laughs> Have you ever done that? Blood sisters. Raise your hand if you've done that. Raise your hand if, you've been, if you're a blood brother with somebody. Nobody? I mean, that's just good sort of <laughs> cleanliness etiquette that we have in our church. Like, don't swap blood. 
I mean, maybe like 30 or 40 years ago, this was very popular, this whole exchanging of blood. We've kind of wised up. But let me, let me give you another example. You say, it's, it's not that old. Because what happens when you get married, right? Like in the old, old days, and in some countries still, when you get married, the father of the bride has to pay what they call a dowry, right? So he has to sacrifice, in a sense, some of his best stuff. I mean, you'd give them your best bulls and your best goats, your best livestock, uh, maybe some of your best uh, fruit, whatever it is. You'd give that in order to create a covenant between the two families, right? It was the sacrifice of something, of of wealth or, or standing that would bring the two families together. Now you say, oh, that's so old school. We don't do that anymore. My father in law has four daughters. And in the course of what was it, six years? He paid for four daughters' weddings. You think he wasn't sacrificed? I mean, this guy just, you could see it long in the face. I mean, he is just beat down after the fourth and final daughter. He's like, thank you, Jesus, I made it through, you know. I mean, this dude was sacrificing some serious cash. I mean, because his daughters, they have great taste. Uh, very, all their friends have expensive eating habits. I mean, he had to get really nice stuff. And so he is, in a sense, paying a dowry, making a sacrifice in order to make this covenant. I mean, I'm eternal grateful, eternally grateful to him uh, for the dowry that he's paid so that we could have this awesome wedding. But we still do it. And then you know what we do at a wedding? What do we say? What's like one of the last things we say? Until what? Death do we part. So both entering into the covenant of marriage requires a sacrifice and exiting the marriage in, a, in, in the perfect world is because of the death of one of the spouses. So we still have this. We still understand this concept. So I want to walk you through very quickly some examples in Scripture in God's revealed word how this works. So we talked about the garden, right? Man and God are in perfect relationship. Death has not even entered the picture. And then man decides to break the covenant with God and he sins. He goes his own way instead of following God's uh, providential, loving um, guidance. And interestingly, death enters the picture. Now, if you read the narrative, it's really interesting because he does this thing and he knows the consequence because it's very clear that when you break the covenant, death will follow. And so he breaks the covenant and then what you see is he hears the sound of God coming into the garden. This is the kind of relationship they had. It was that close. And then him and his wife, they hide. They try to hide from God. It's hilarious. You cannot hide from God. He is the best hide-and-seek player there ever was. He will find you. But they try to hide from him because they think death is coming for them, right? Instead, if you read the narrative, what happens? Instead of death coming to the man and the woman, what happens is they see themselves naked and ashamed, it says. And so they'd made some loincloths out of leaves, which is not very effective come winter. And so what God does is he kills an animal and he gives them the skin to cover themselves. So death enters the picture. But it's not the death of Adam and Eve who have sinned. It's the death of an innocent animal whose blood was shed at the breaking of a covenant between God and man. So the release of the Eden covenant needed 
the shedding of blood. And the pattern continues again and again and again. We come to the Exodus and the people of God are enslaved in Egypt and God says, I want to rescue you from this covenant of slavery that you're in. I want to release you from this covenant of slavery. And so as you read this story, what you see is that the only way that the release of the people of God comes, God sends ten plagues on the people and the final plague is the killing of the firstborn. And he says, the only way you'll escape this is if you go and shed the blood of an innocent lamb and you put the blood over your doorpost. And the angel of God will come by and he will only inflict judgment upon those who do not have the blood shed. We call this the Passover. The Jewish people still celebrated every year that the blood of the innocent lamb over their doorpost saved them. And they were released. They were released from slavery. So they were released from the covenant because of the death, because of the, the shed blood. Then you get to Mount Sinai and they're in the, in the wilderness and God brings to Moses, he says, come up on the mountain, I'm giving you the Ten Commandments, I'm going to give you the law, I'm going to give you the way to organize your community together to be holy and set apart for me. And he says, and that's the text that we have in Hebrews chapter 9, he says, the way that you're going to do this, the way you're going to initiate this covenant is by the sacrifice of goats and bulls. And we just read it in chapter 9. That's what he's talking about. At Mount Sinai, the inauguration of the Mosaic covenant comes through the shedding of blood. Now you say, okay, well maybe this is just a, a, a Hebrew thing, maybe it's just an Israelite thing. I think this cycle of death and the shedding of blood, releasing and uh, making new covenants, I think this is happening in our world every single day probably and surely every single uh, century. This cycle of death and blood, uh, this cycle, and, and I think where we see it is in wars, and rumors of wars, and bonds of slavery, and covenants broken, and, 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 and constitutions turned over, and it always comes, right, at what? The cost of human death and sacrifice, the cost of bloodshed. So we see it, we understand that this is the cycle of our world, the way to get in and out of these covenants tends to be, you know, and we have this sort of... Uh, optimistic idea that, oh, we can do this without the shedding of blood. But the problem is, we can't. Not, not one example of serious covenants being released or initiated without some type of, usually through war, blood being shed. The cycle never ends. The next war will come. Blood will be shed. This is our problem because we're humans. Now here's the good news. Here's the really good news. And then there was Jesus. And then there was Jesus. And in this one act of divine intervention, at the death of Jesus, the Son of God, what we see is both the release of the old covenant of works, the release of the old covenant of, of works, of religious ritual, of trying to earn your way to God, the release of that by the shedding of blood by Jesus, and simultaneously, uh, the initiation, the inauguration of a new covenant which we called the covenant of grace. And we talked about that several weeks ago. That too is initiated by the shedding of blood. We have the release of the old and the beginning of the new and it's all by the blood of Jesus. 
And so that's why when we come to the table and we hear Jesus' words at the Last Supper before he went to the cross, what does he say? The Last Supper, he says, this is the covenant in my blood poured out for forgiveness of sins. So that's why he says says it. And this new covenant is a better covenant. Romans 10 says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the heart, for in the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. This is for all people. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is how the new covenant in the blood of Jesus works. No more sacrifice. Confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believing in your heart. Now let me try to explain. My, my hope was to have a great whiteboard illustration. I didn't have time to do it. So I'm just going to paint you a picture. Paint you a picture with words. And I want to show you the colossal shift in how the blood works. Okay? In the Old Covenant, it went something like this. I'm just do this so I can get very animated, okay? Picture the whiteboard here, okay? In the Old Covenant, here's uh, how sacrifices wor- worked. From my earthly tent, okay, I would take my most precious possession, which tended to be my best bull or my best goat, or if I didn't have enough money, I would take my best grain. And I would take it from my tent, and I would take it to the tent of God or the house of God, the temple, and I would take it there as an offering, for the sin that I had committed. Now when I shed the blood of my precious possession on the altar, the blood was symbolic of the penalty being paid for my transgression, my sin. Okay, This is how it worked. And the hope was in order to um, draw near to God and cleanse my conscience. And if you were here last week, we talked about the problem with that system, right? The problem with coming to the temple, bringing your bull or your goat and, and, and shedding its blood is that at the end of the day, you, it was supposed to clean your conscience, but it never did. And you would leave the temple, and so you'd have to come back because you would still be filled with guilt. It never worked. And the reason it never worked because it was never supposed to work because there was a better sacrifice coming. And so at the end of this, you have my, my tent, my bull, uh, offering to God, Shedding of blood, and the result was always what? Death. My bull's dead. His, his shed blood. He's dead. He's dead. Death was the end of this process. Now here's what's crazy, and why Jesus coming changed the way sacrifice worked. So let's think of these same categories here. This is showing how God sacrifices. From God's tent, from his heavenly sanctuary, God takes what? His most precious possession, which is what? The eternal Son. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. That's who he takes from his heavenly tent and he sends them where? To our tent. To the earthly tent, which is the world. He sends him to our tent. And then you know what the Son does? The Son sheds his blood on the cross, on the cross, for what? To pay the penalty for my sin, 
for your sin and the sins of all humanity. In order that what? In order that, we might draw, that He might draw near to man and that we might have a restored relationship. Now, this is where it gets wacky, wild, crazy. See the parallels here? You see this picture, how it's played out beforehand so that when we see it, we might say, I recognize that. That seems like something I've seen before. But here's where it gets totally different. At the end of this process, God, from His tent, sends His most precious possession, His Son Jesus Christ, into the world through the incarnation, which we celebrate just in a couple days here, into the world, He comes and He lives a life preparing Himself to shed His blood, and He sheds His blood, and what we're expecting, because this is how... This is how the equation has always worked. He dies, and we got to do it again, right? But when we look at the death of Jesus, the shed blood, what's the result? Life. Well, where'd the sacrifice go? Where'd the blood go? It's gone. Because of what? The resurrection. The equation has changed. That's why the resurrection of Jesus is the most important moment in human history. And it actually happened. The dead sacrifice, the shed blood, rose up and walked out of the grave. And He changed it. He changed the way sacrifice works forever. Before Christ, every sacrifice that was given always meant death. Death of the animal that clothed Adam and Eve death of the Egyptian firstborns to free the Israelites, death of the sacrifices to establish the law. Death always led to more death. This was the cycle. Life for death. And then when you come to Jesus, after the sacrifice of Jesus, the shed blood of Jesus, this all changed. Jesus' death put an end to death. Jesus' death put an end to retribution. Jesus' death put an end to shed blood. Jesus' death, which was real and full of real blood and full of real sacrifice and agony, it ended in resurrection. It ended in life. The curse of Adam was lifted. And covenants change. We say that doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair to me that God would give up His life, that He'd give up His blood for me and my sin. You're right. It's not fair. It's grace. It's not fair. But you know what? God desired the relationship more than retribution. And so He did something about it. Do you care, in your own life, I mean, do you care more about the relationship or do you care more about retribution? If you're cultivating the heart of a worshiper, the heart of a sacrifice, or the heart of God, you care more about the relationship than retribution. God cared more about the relationship. His goal, right? In the old system, the goal was a clean heart. In God's system, the goal was restored relationship. See, he's turning it. He's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about the relationship. If you apply this in your life, I guarantee you you'll have the best relationships of anybody that you know. See, justice always needs blood, so blood had to be given. But God changed it because it's not our blood. It's not the blood of our goats. He's given us His blood. He's given us His sacrifice. So how do you cultivate this heart of a sacrifice? How do you cultivate this heart of a worshiper? 
Here's how you do it. Number one, you have to realize the realness and the magnitude of the sacrifice that God has made. His blood was actually shed. The blood of the Son of God was actually poured out, spilled all over the altar for you. You have to see that it's real. And it's like, if you think about, even today, if you think about sacrifices, just like the totally unquantifiable difference between a sacrifice that doesn't end in shed blood and the sacrifice that does, you realize how important it is to realize that this is real blood that was shed. Like, you know, we all are so thankful that we live in a country of freedom and we're so thankful for uh, the military veterans and the active duty that protect our freedom. But right, but when we hear I mean, we know the sacrifice of relationship and of marriage and not seeing their kids and, and the emotional uh, sacrifice, that's real sacrifice. But then when we hear about somebody who's shed their blood to protect my freedom, that totally changes it in our head, right? That totally changes it. It's almost unquantifiable. The, ma- the, the magnitude when shed blood is a part of the equation. And no one's blood is more valuable than the blood of Jesus, the Son of God. And he shed it. He's actually shed it for us. It's spilled all over the place. His body was broken for us. So if we, can, if, we, if we fail to kind of see the realness of this, if we just allegorize the blood of Jesus and we don't see it for what it really is, real blood, I mean real blood with the smell and the redness I mean, and real death, you'll never cultivate the heart of a worshiper, the heart of a sacrificer, because you don't realize how real it is. I mean, my hope, you know, I said to a couple people, I'm about to ruin Christmas for people, but the weight of this plays into this season, man. I mean, the incarnation, the true joy, the true craziness of the incarnation is that God sent His Son, and what was the primary purpose of sending His Son? It was to die. And I was thinking about this, there's so much red at Christmas, but we never think of little baby Jesus, so cute and wonderful in the manger, was sent here by God to do what? Shed His blood. He's the divine blood donor. That'll change the way you look at the nativity scene. That'll jack you up. I mean, to think about bring, I mean, it's already so nerve-wracking to bring a child into this world. Like, like I just want to protect Grace and I, just, I want nothing to happen to him. I want nothing bad to happen to him. I don't want him to experience pain. I don't want any of that. Now, of course, I can't stop that, but just to think that that's going to happen to him, it, it, it almost makes you crazy. And to think that God sent his son into the world and the whole purpose, the main purpose, was to shed his blood. That's crazy. That's exactly what we celebrate at Christmas. That little baby Jesus came to shed his blood. That's wild. That changed the way you look at the nativity Change the way you sing, O Holy Night, the night when blood was born. We've got to wake up from our festive slumber and we've got to see Jesus for who he is. Come to shed blood for us. It's wild. We've got to see his blood is real. We've got to see that it's spilled. We've got to see the very heart of God in the blood of Jesus. So once, once we've done that, we might start to cultivate, it might stir in us a real heart of a sacrificer. When we realize this is what God is like, this is what God has done, this is what the great sacrificer, this is what he's all about. 
we might begin to cultivate this heart of a sacrificer. But the other thing we have to do is we have to imitate the great sacrificer. Here's where it gets really good. We've got to imitate. Stick with me. Be right in here with me. This is so book. I've got it in my notes. Go back to the whiteboard. We're back to the whiteboard, okay? Here it is. This is how it works in the new day. This is how the new sacrifice works, okay? So the old one busted up by way God sacrificed. He shows us a better way, right? And now we want to imitate him. We see what he's done. It's real. It's amazing. It, it's almost hard to fathom that he'd do that. And then we need to imitate him if we want to have the heart of a sacrificer. He changed the equation. It's no longer death for life. It's life and life, right? The end is not death. The end is life. So how do we participate in the new covenant, the new equation? Here's, here's how it works. Here's how it works. Here's how it works. God says what? I don't want your sac- We talked about this last week. I don't want your sacrifices. What does he say? What does he want? I want your heart. Okay? So here's how it works. God sends from his tent his most precious possession, which is himself. This is where you've got to understand the Trinity. He sends himself, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, one God, three persons. He sends himself into the world, into our house, as an offering. And he sheds the blood of himself, of his son Jesus, at the cross to pay the penalty for all humanity in order that he might draw near to man and restore the relationship. And, and, and at the end of it is life. If we want to imitate that, here's how we do it. We come to our tent, and we, and we realize the most precious possession in my tent is my heart and my life. It's my heart and my life. It's nothing else. It's not my money. It's not my time. It's not my resources. It's myself. That is the most precious thing to me. And I take myself and I go to the house of God through the Spirit. I invite Him in. That's our way of coming to Him. And I surrender my own will. I surrender myself as an offering to God. And then what I do? I don't shed any blood I stand under the already shed blood of Jesus and I accept it into, my, in, into myself. I stand under it, under the covering, the sacrifice of Christ, once for all, already finished, no more sacrifice, in order that what? I might draw near to God and have my relationship with Him restored. And you know what the result of that sacrifice is? It's still a sacrifice. It's life. I give my life for more life. I give my life now for life eternal. I give my heart and he fills it up. You see how it's changed? You see how the equation has changed? It's still sacrifice. God is still asking you to sacrifice. But he's saying, don't sacrifice blood. That's taken care of. Don't sacrifice your bull or your goat. He says, I want your heart. I want your life. I want you to give me the most precious thing. And at the end of it, it won't be death. It will be life. And we enter into the resurrection. Does that make sense? We enter into the resurrected life of Christ when we participate in the new offering. The new offering. Oh, holy night. The night that Christ was born. The night that the blood came into the world 
so that it might be shed, so that we don't have to sacrifice, that death is not the end, but life is the end. Oh, it's such good news. The life of Jesus poured out for us. So when we imitate this, when we imitate this process of giving our life to get more life, we are actually imitating the great sacrificer. We are actually coming under the covering of Jesus' blood. We are actually stepping into the new covenant of grace. No more death. No more death. It's good. It's good news. Now the problem is our hearts aren't yet reformed. Even if our bank accounts are reformed or our lifestyles are reformed or our schedules are reformed, lots of times the heart is the last thing to come. So we've got the form of religion over the heart of religion. We've developed sort of these outward images of giving my life to Christ, but inwardly we have not given Him any part of our heart. We've got to fix that. We've got to get real honest. We've got to say, am I doing this for me or am I doing it for God? I've got to die to myself. I've got to live to Christ. Do I desire relationship with God more than cleanliness? Or do I just want to feel clean? Do I just want to feel better? Do I just want to feel like things are okay? If you don't love the relationship, you're not entering into the new covenant. The relationship is the most important thing. But if I just want what God can give me, I'm missing out the, on the whole point. And then, you know, here's the hard part. I've got to do it again tomorrow. And the next day. And day after day after day, I have to work intentionally at dying to myself, sacrificing my life, and giving it to God. He says, pick up your cross daily and follow me. You can only do this if you understand the blood of Jesus. Let's pray.